You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. enjoyed that groovy intro music. Uh, welcome to the core curriculum where we members of the Christian Humanist Network talk about uh, classic works from a Christian perspective and we read them very slowly and carefully. And right now we're doing the Odyssey and today we've got books five, six, and seven. And I am very happy to say that with me tonight are Victoria Reynolds Farmer and Katie Grubbs. Hello, you guys. Hi. Hi. Hello. And uh, they don't need an introduction to people who are regular listeners and, and to our network, but I will introduce them anyway. Victoria is the co-founder of the Christian Feminist Podcast. She holds a PhD in literature and gender studies from Florida State University and lives in Atlanta with her husband and cat. For money, she manages an online community for a startup. And Katie is a regular Christian feminist podcast panelist, as well as an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. And Katie lives in Sugarland, Texas, which always sounds really like sweet tea to me or something. It is pretty. It's pretty sweet. Is it sweet? Okay. <laughs> we enjoy living here. I will say that it's named after the uh, Imperial Sugar Factory and the old sugar plantation, which has a history that is not so sweet. Got but, it. <laughs> but, it is, but it is a lovely place to live. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. I'm sure it's hot right now. And, and actually, I, I live in Illinois, and it's very hot here uh, at the moment. Um, I'm Christina Bieber-Lake. I teach at Wheaton College, and I'm also a regular panelist on the Christian Feminist Podcast, which is how I met Victoria and Katie, and we're all glad to be working together. We really enjoy, I think, the three of us recording together. So... We are going to jump right in, and um, I've already recorded with Victoria a later episode in the in the Odyssey, but it's really okay, right, right, Victoria, because it's all kind of this roving, ranging it, myth. It, it's all episodic. It's we don't all, have to go in in uh, linear order. That's right, and that's it, it, actually quite fitting, right, because uh, the, it's almost picaresque in some ways. It's just who knows what's going to happen to Odysseus next. So as I've been kind of thinking about these three books, I mean, I definitely signed on to moderate these three books because I'm very interested in Calypso and Odysseus's relationship with Calypso. And I'm always liking to address in our conversation how the specific books at hand fit in with the overall story, like what they're trying to, how they contribute to what's going on. Um, and then sort of relate that back to what we consider to be the main themes of the Odyssey as a whole, which, of course, depending on the century and the readers who are reading it, there's a lot of different things going on and, and which things are more important or less important have a lot to do with where we are. And I just think that makes it even more interesting uh, to, to talk about. So just to get us get us started, book five is is. Uh, for those of you who haven't really recently looked at it, begins with Athena pleading with Zeus to just let up on Odysseus, specifically to let Calypso release him. 
and uh, Zeus agrees, and then he dispatches his son, Hermes, to do the work. So we get this long scene describing Calypso's cave and a lengthy discussion between Hermes and Calypso. So I'll just start us out. What do you, what do you guys think we learned from these particular passages and this kind of lengthy conversation between Hermes and Calypso? Um, Calypso claps back pretty hard about the kinds of things that gods are allowed to do versus the kinds of things that goddesses are allowed to do. And she's pretty upset about, um, what, what she sees as, as kind of misogynist differences. Yeah. Say more about that. Where specifically are you referring? I know you and I have the same translation, Katie. I don't know who your translator is. Um, I'm using, it's it's kind of funny, I'm using a, a very old, I'm using the very old Samuel Butler translation, prose translation, um, because that is what we have at our house. Yeah, <laughs> I understand. Um, and not a text on the screen. Um, but I, so you guys, if you guys want to refer to line numbers, if y'all is the same, that's totally fine. And I'll just try to, I'll try to spitball it. I'll try to say roughly where it is if I refer to anything specific. Uh, so the section I'm referring to starts around, I guess, line 115 or so. Okay. Um, uh, Calypso shuddered and let fly at him. You cruel, jealous gods, you bear a grudge whenever any goddess takes a man to sleep with as a lover in her bed, just so the gods who live at eat just... So the gods who live at ease were angry when rosy-fingered Dawn took up Orion and from her golden throne chased Artemis, attacked and killed him with her gentle arrows. Demeter with the cornrows in her hair indulged her own desire and she made love with Aeson in the triple furrowed fields till Zeus found out, hurled flashing flame and killed him. So now you male gods are upset with me for living with a man, a man I saved. So she just flat says... This is a bunch of sex negative misogynist nonsense, <laughs> and you don't know what you're talking about. It's so true. It's such a great. And Katie, you really got to get your hands on this translation. It is a, as I mentioned in the other podcast, it's a revelation. It's such a good translation. Which one are you guys using? Um, the Emily Wilson. Oh, the Wilson. Okay, the the yeah. I was actually I was reading that about that one the other day, and it's, it does sound really really interesting. I haven't I haven't seen it before, but now I'm my I'm intrigued. Hearing that, you guys talk about it. That series of uh, Demeter agriculture puns that just come right in a row, so delicious. Like, <laughs> she's having so much fun. The cornrows yeah, in yeah. her hair. <laughs> and and uh, and then they make love in triple furrowed fields. So the line is sort of undulating. Like, she knows what she's doing. It's it's wonderful. It is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, she's... Uh... <laughs> Such a really feisty um, goddess, if we can call her that. And she doesn't want to let Odysseus go. And she's that trying will, to... Um, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. No, she's I was just trying to tell Hermes just to, you know, get lost. Which, you know, and that that part is really cool. It's, it's, it's hard, though. I'm conflicted reading that section of this book because, on the one hand, everything she's saying is true about how, you know, how the goddesses are treated in their dalliances with mortal beings and versus the gods. On the other hand, she's literally keeping Odysseus as her prisoner. Mm-hmm. I oh, mean, yeah. and, I you know, and so, yeah, it's, it's like, it, it's, she's a really um, complicated, I don't know. She's, she's, you know, it, she's a complicated 
person. Um, as far as that first encounter, you were asking um, Christina what we thought about it. My One of my favorite parts about that is that Hermes shows up and kind of stands for a while admiring her home. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's really impressed with where she lives. And he's, you know, he, he admires it for a while. But when he comes in and she says, you know, why are you here? And, you know, and he kind of um, cast aspersions at, like, oh, I'm well, I didn't want to come out here in the boonies. I mean, I would never come here. <laughs> But <laughs> Zeus told me to. Um, and it's just about where the, this old timey prose translation says, who could possibly want to come all this way over the sea where there are no cities full of people to offer me sacrifices or choice hecatombs? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's just it, it, the way that he reflexively lies and and, you know, about not being impressed by where, you know, and, but it, but that's so consistent with how so many people are in. I mean, that's you know, that's one of the biggest kind of themes you were talking about the whole thing. Where does this fit with the whole thing? Mm-hmm. The just that that kind of reflexive falsehood. It's in Odysseus. It's in Athena. Like they all do it. And so it was just that was one of the parts to me where it's it's just really funny that you know he feels like he has to front, like he doesn't really like it here. He doesn't want to be here. You know, even though he the uh, it's it's made a point of that he's impressed by her right. island and the and gods it, and the gods and the goddesses are just are worse than the mortals even at it. Yeah, so so petty and vain. Mm-hmm. And another another theme um, that I I should have probably started with, um, Katie, you mentioned him sort of talking about cities full of people and and that being the ideal. You have um, that contrasted with the kind of more feminine coded domestic arts. And when we first see Calypso as Hermes does, uh, she's weaving Mm -hmm. because weaving is what women do in Homer and in Greece. They do. But as we talked about when the last time we were talking, it's also a pretty uh, loaded, obviously metaphor for textuality, um, storytelling, so it's not without its feminist um, powers, if you will. And it's also oh, yeah. kind of like weaving a home or, you know, hearth and home. And there's just so much emphasis on the setting of Calypso's cave and how desirable it is, um, as as Katie was talking about there, too. And and, and, and it's kind of like weaving a trap, uh, the story, of the text, the the lusciousness of it, right? Come into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. Exactly. exactly. It's kind of, it's kind of sad too, though. Like she's, Very. she's, she's weaving, you know, she wifely style. She's weaving. Um, I was talking about this book to David and, and, and we were talking about the weaving and David's like, well, that's what wives do. And I thought, you know what? You're right. I mean, almost every time it's, you know, I mean, not, not like in way, way later in like book 14 or something, you, they tell you about the, the giant looms of the sea, the stone looms of the sea nymphs where they, you know, weave their purple ocean dresses, something like that. But, you know, um, but she's acting like a wife weaving the cloth doing in this kind of bucolic domestic tranquility, but he's her prisoner <laughs> and she wants him to be her husband, but he's, he's not about that. He doesn't want to do that. And so it's kind of sad. Who is and also he, weaving. Yes. Who is, you know, kind of, not kind of she's like literally weaving for her life to to keep her yep. life stable and yeah Absolutely. i mean all of that is, is connected mm-hmm. yeah and she's singing and that's a part of it too because then the theme of singing and seduction comes up 
at various points in the Odyssey and almost always gendered, right? Singing with seduction and trapping and trapping a man and keeping him prisoner. Uh, and, and it's like accentuated by drugs usually, right? Um, when Hermes comes in, she leads him to a table heaped with ambrosia and mixes a drink, red nectar, uh, and kind of drugs him a little bit, I think. <laughs> or, or is that a different? Is that a different scene where somebody no, gets drugged? And I'm I'm always uh, I'm always shocked that there was never a you know in the mid '90s like everything classic was an edgy teen movie. <laughs> never got like an edgy teen movie where all the greek gods are roofing people like i feel like i feel like that would have been a logical thing to happen in 1997 but maybe i'm off about that no victoria there's your chance you can go back in time to 1997 and produce that no, thank you. Time travel is invented. It, the closest thing, the closest thing to that, Victoria, would, but not really because it's not that edgy. Because it's 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 YA is like the Percy Jackson books, because that's all this. That's all the the uh, that's all the 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 Greek gods kind of you know transformed yeah. into modern context. So and and the, one of the few things I remember, I read that series with my little brother. When oh, he was fun. A kid. fun! Fun! We fun. read them together to see the movies together. But um, one of the only things I remember about those books is that in those books, the children of Aphrodite, um, the demigod children of Aphrodite, one of the powers they have is they can convince anybody to do anything. They have like beautiful speech, like, mm. you know, and they're, I mean, they're all hot. Like all of them are hot and they can convince you to do anything. <laughs> um, you know, oh, inter- interest. that's interesting. Um, yeah. They, that's cause you know, I guess he had to try to think of powers that could translate to a YA novel that aren't totally shady. That wouldn't not- be just yes. rapey. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so that's the the male and female children of Aphrodite in those groups, demigod children, can are, are persuasive, extremely persuasive, and can convince you to do anything. Which is I I don't know why that one stuck in my mind, but it did. Oh, because it's a good reading of the Odyssey. I mean, you know, of of because that happens a lot in the the Odyssey as well. Uh, the, in fact, it happens in the the book that we're discussing, or the next book with Nausicaa, where Odysseus decides he's going to try to use his words to get uh, Nausicaa to do what he needs. So, I mean, we'll yeah. we'll get to that, but it, it's a big part. Uh, and that's why I say, again, the weaving is not an insignificant comparison to textuality and storytelling and using the power of words, because to me, that's just a major theme in, in this ancient Greek uh, epics. How could it not be, right? We're dealing with oral poetry, the telling of stories to um, to other people. It's not just like this story is told to other people. Inside of the story are stories told to other people, right? The tales of, of the Odyssey are being told to others within the Odyssey itself. So that's got to be just one of the major themes, right? How do you use words to convince others to do it? Not to mention we're talking about Hermes here from which we get the word hermeneutical. Yeah, for sure. sure. Translation, interpretation, persuasion, even rhetoric, powers of rhetoric, all of that, it seems like, is a big part of what's going on here. So I I feel like that's... Do you feel like there's something different that an ancient Greek person would see in reading this particular section? I'm just... I'm always interested in that question. 
guys have any thoughts about that? That's a hard one because I feel like I, I, I don't know that I feel like I have the, the cultural knowledge yeah. to make a judgment call on that, though I feel like someone at the time probably would have a much deeper knowledge of more specific beliefs about these particular gods. I mean, we, you know, we have ideas about Hermes, things that, you know, have been passed down and then have been written down by people over time and collected. But, you know, when, and, and to be honest too, people are hearing these stories about their gods that they believe are real. Like we're thinking of, we're thinking of Hermes as a character. Yeah. And so we're like, Oh, Hermes. So hilarious. You know, but I was reading, I was, I've been reading the Odyssey a lot because I'm on several of these episodes, but I don't, I was joking with David the other day, I put it down and I said, man, I'm just shocked that some of these people in the first century wanted to get rid of these gods and become Christians. Like, why would you ever want to get rid of these people who, you know, are raping all the time and lying? And, you know, I mean, I'd like, but that's, you know, that, I mean, I think that's the biggest difference. That's to me, that's the biggest way they would have heard this differently. If that's how we're thinking about it is they were believing that these are real um, you know, real entities that have sway over their lives the way that Athena does over Odysseus's life. I mean, she just stage manages his entire adventure. She um, does. And very, Which and very is why, ways. right? That's why I think Calypso, one reason I think Calypso is so interesting is because she exists in a kind of, not exactly a liminal space, but like, there's a passage, where is it? One... 80-ish, where she basically says, oh, Odysseus, you're so cute. You understand that the gods are basically manipulating you, and you can't do anything about it, but you know it's happening. Um, That's so precious, and I feel for you, so I'm going to kind of step back here. So she's, like, acknowledging that these machinations are happening, and Mm. she knows, and she knows that he knows, but neither of them can do anything about it. That's interesting. And and so I find her sympathetic because she's kind of trying to mediate as best she can. But I would hazard a guess that an ancient Greek audience would find that less sympathetic than I do and more kind of transgressive of, of the order of things. Interesting. Yeah, you know, it's funny when we did, since we did the Iliad and the Odyssey and Plato and all that so close together, I feel like I've had some understanding of things that became clear that were not clear to me before. And one of them is why Plato didn't like the poets. It's because he always, I mean, I know he's very clear about this in the Republic, but until I was reading it side by side so closely, it's it's because they lie about the gods because the gods are not depicted as good right like it's the the problem is that the gods aren't good meaning that if if somebody is all powerful that it has to be good and so it's a the problem is the lying that the problem is not lying because they're not telling the truth because it's fiction it's because gods are good (laughs) i mean i think in plato's conception it's like the transcendent is the good the forms yeah, sure. That makes sense. So it's it, it just sort of has been dawning on me that, of course, he would be bothered by the way that the ancient Greek uh, idea of fate works, how the gods are not good, how there's no goodness really anywhere, right? There's nothing transcendent here. It's just fickleness. So, and, and power, um, you know, pawns, the, 
people are the pawns of the gods, and, and they just seem to be playing around uh, quite a bit, um, which is really kind of yucky. <laughs> I'm sorry for that really sophisticated academic word. But Calypso, this scene where she's got him kind of trapped, what I would love to hear your thoughts on is 186, or page 186 for Victoria, lines 200 plus uh, to 187. Let me just um, read this, and then I'd um, like to hear what you have to say. The goddess queen began, Odysseus, son of Laertes, blessed by Zeus. Your plans are always changing. Do you really want to go back to that home you love so much? Well, then goodbye. But if you understood how glutted you will be with suffering before you reach your home, you would stay here with me and be immortal though you might still wish to see that wife you always pine for. And here's the really fun part, right? And anyway, I know my body is better than hers is. I am taller too. Mortals can never rival the immortals in beauty. I knew that was the section you were going to read. How did you know that? Because in the margins, I have written, oh, snap. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, I... I don't know. I'm a bad feminist probably for being so enraptured by Calypso, but I, I find her so interesting because she's, uh, as, as the kids say, she's so thirsty. She like mm. wants Odysseus so bad and she like doesn't even try to hide how bad she wants him. And she's so desperate. Like she's throwing shade at Penelope and saying like, we all know I'm hotter than her. Like, it's like, I don't know, bad Instagram photos. It's just, it <laughs> seems so, <laughs> so human and silly. And yet she's neither of those things because she's a goddess. So I, I don't know. I, I find her so um, relatable, even as she is not at all relatable, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah. Well, she, that doesn't make you a bad feminist. That just makes you an admirer of Sisu, as, as I am, too. You know, the laugh of the Medusa that we've talked about before, right? This is a kind of a laugh of a Medusa thing. Yeah, it's it's so, I mean, yeah, you're right. She she overflows in that way. And I, <laughs> I think that's, that's, that's what I'm really responding to is how she... Um, seems to be okay with doing that and, and seems to like want to be super emotional and, and into that moment and not be ashamed of it. Yes. She's just who she is. And she overflows with her Calypso-ness. I can't also go ahead, Katie. I was just trying to imagine what your translation of the scene looked like. So, Oh, you know, let me see. Um, she, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's a little bit more, uh, formal, <laughs> um, let me find it it says uh, let me make you immortal no matter how anxious you may be to see this wife of yours of whom you're thinking all the time day after day yet I flatter myself that I am no whit less tall or well looking than she is um, so it's fancier but she basically says the same thing mm -hmm. um, but I, to me she almost it seems like she's grasping at Odysseus in part because she's so isolated you know, uh, mm. Ojiji is so far away. I think I remember seeing when I looked on the map, you know, she's it's where yes. she is is so far away. It's from, south of um, Crete. It's yes. an isolated island. Looks beautiful. She's out there all by herself. Um, you know, she's so she's not even though she's immortal, she's not on Olympus. Um, she's you know, she's not with the other gods. She's out there alone by herself in a cavern. And, 
cave. Yeah. In a cave. No, she, there's no other women. You know, if you think about Nasca, she's got like a giant crowd of maidservants. And, That's true. Um, you know, there are no other. She's just by herself. And so I think that explains some of the thirstiness too. Victoria is it's not just, you know, I, th- I think there's, there's loneliness in her um, that comes through in, you know, which is why she wants to make him her husband. She yeah. doesn't want to keep him there to be her sex slave. You know, she wants to marry Odysseus That's true. and have him be immortal with her. She doesn't just want to toy with him till he dies eventually and then get a hotter model, you know, um, and that I think is, is, is very humanizing. You know, the reason why I was so focused on this passage is because I am still enraptured by Martha Nussbaum's reading of the Odyssey. And it's kind of focused on this whole scene with Calypso and particularly this passage. And it, the article that I'm referring to is one called Transcending Humanity, in which she makes the case that Odysseus' decision to reject the offer of immortality uh, is a significant one for the ancient Greek view of life and life as a mortal person as opposed to life as a god, that um, that the type of transcendence that she's offering is not a transcendence that's appropriate for human beings. Uh, you know, this kind of immortality where you live where all your needs are sated and and instead he chooses to go back home uh, to to his wife, his very human wife, and to a death as an old man, right? which we find out later that's his destiny is that he will die as an old man as opposed to kind of being in what people in America, for instance, thinks is really the desirable thing. Like, I, I think part of what Nussbaum's argument is to say, like, that's kind of what we think we want, you know, by wanting the fountain of youth and wanting to live forever and all that, but we really don't want it. What do you guys think about that? You can't see my computer screen, but it says Christina is going to talk about Martha Nussbaum. <laughs> <laughs> um, and under that I have written uh, <laughs> under that I have written uh, why Captain America going back to dance with Peggy is romantic and not sad <laughs> I get that Victoria I hear that I, I know exactly what we're talking about. Well, it's, I mean, it's le- its not as classy as citing Martha Nussbaum, but it's the same point, right? Like, this idea that mortality is humanity and that wanting something beyond that is not, it, it's taking away what makes humans human. Mm-hmm. Now, is yeah. it a good thing that you knew I was going to say that or is that a bad thing? I'm sitting here going, oh, no. No, I think I just like, you know, I've read your work. That's I true. read your work before I met you and became your friend. So I know the kinds of things that you're into. And <laughs> that is a very famous essay that I read in school. Yeah. So I, I just I knew that you were going to talk about that there because I did. <laughs> okay, thanks. I'm just sort of cracking up. Yeah, I, I yeah, I was just so I was just so stunned by that, not just because I was thinking about mortality and immortality and all of the things that I was working on, but because it's such a fresh reading of the Odyssey in a lot of ways, um, that suffering, that it's making an argument that human suffering is just 
a part of human experience and to kind of say that you don't want to suffer is to say you don't want to be human. Um, because if you notice Odysseus, the next paragraph, what he says is, all right, fine, just bring it, right? Like if some God strikes me on the wine dark sea, I'll endure it. By now I'm used to suffering. I've gone through so much. Let this come on. It's, it really is like a bring it. Um, come at me, bro. Come at I'm me, bro. Poseidon. Yeah. And then we get Poseidon and, and all that, you know, and that's my next question for you guys. Why so long about this struggle between, you know, sort of Odysseus versus Poseidon, you know, Athena and Odysseus versus Poseidon? Why so much of that? Do you mean throughout the whole entire thing? Yeah, well, but particularly book five, like he finally gets out from underneath Calypso's, you know, sort of spells here and 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 it's all the rest of that chat, that book is Poseidon's trying to swamp him because water is scary and, okay. and and people drown right i mean because water is uncontrollable in so many ways and we need we as humans not just the ancient greeks need a way to explain h- how and why that kind of uncontrollable again with the overflowing i wasn't trying to do that mm. um we kind of need a way to understand how that works and need a way to control the uncontrollable. So I think these passages work to do that because this is a society where boats are how people travel. And so, of course, in something that is so episodic, you're going to have a lot of stretches on the water and deal with Poseidon doing the things that he does. So that's really good because that goes back to really the existence of myth to begin with, right? It exists to explain those things that are hard to explain to, in in a way, kind of tame them thereby, even though they're untamable. I mean, also, Poseidon's just cool. Like, True. I, I don't, I don't want to just say, like, the story exists to explain the state of the world, though that is a central purpose of narrative. And I agree. I, I think you kind of got to have both. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it, and it, it is cool. I mean, you know, that like when, when the way it's described in this translation is that he grasped his trident, stirred it around in the sea and roused the rage of every wind that blows. And, you know, it goes on from there, but also just, I don't know if this is, I was going to say cynically, maybe not cynically, just thinking in terms of kind of the structure of the narrative, the episodic structure of the narrative, whenever you need him to go, to a different place or whenever you need to put him in trouble again, boom, Poseidon. Like it's a, it's a very, Mm -hmm. um, it's a useful narrative, uh, tool for this story. You know, it makes me think of the 1930s film serials where the end of every episode is a cliffhanger. And so they always had to keep thinking of new ways to put like flash Gordon in danger. But with Mm. Odysseus, you can kind of just say, and then Poseidon (laughs) made a storm. Or, you know, I mean, and it and it works because we know that because we've been told from the beginning that Poseidon has this unending anger towards Odysseus and then Athena gets to save him again. And, you know, it's it's a way of creating movement in the story, getting him from place to place. And um, and so in that way, it's also just a very useful device. That's the word I was looking for. And, you know, it is interesting. Man against the sea is a story that we tell a lot. Because it is exciting. 
There was a Robert Redford film that was just that. He was on this boat trying to stay alive. Uh, you know, I remember seeing that. It just popped into my mind. I didn't see it, but my mom saw it like three times. And see it, yeah. What do you get out of seeing a film like that three times except the kind of thrill of a man being almost attacked by the sea? Yeah, I'm a jerk because I was like, Mom, you already know what's going to, like, he's going <laughs> to sink and the boat's going to go. So I'm a bad person. But that I asked her that, like, why would you do that three times? And she was like, because it's so exciting. Exciting. Okay. Yeah. But but it is kind of exciting, right? Like, why why can't I think of the name of that film? But I liked it. Like, I enjoyed watching that battle. It was exciting. Uh, and you know, it's interesting, though, because that, I think one of the reasons that is so exciting is that the idea of the triumph of human over right. nature. Um, and that it makes a, a less majestic film that it made me think of when you said that of human versus the sea is there's a movie from maybe three three years ago, four years ago. It's a Blake Lively movie called The Shallows where it's like just Blake Lively on a rock at sea and there's a shark between her and the shore. Mm. Um, and it, I'm a shark movie person. I like shark movies. And this one's unusual because there are no boats. She's inside of the shore. She was surfing and a shark tried to get her and wounded her and she crawls up on this rock and she can see the beach, but the shark is there between. Oh, yeah. And how does she get back to land? But um, in that case, in that story... It's her versus a force of nature, which is the shark. And so you get to have this, you know, triumph over nature. But in the case of Odysseus with the Odyssey, anytime that he survives one of these storms, so often it's it's not the triumph of human over nature. You know, Athena mm-hmm. saved his butt again. Mm-hmm. Or in this case, Io gives him her shawl to wrap around himself so that he can't be hurt. Um, and so it's, it steals a little bit of that excitement that you guys were talking about of watching a human face nature and face the sea, you know, um, we, it's difficult to feel like he's not going to make it. He might not make it because Uh we know that he's under the protection of Athena. Right. And so it takes away a little bit of that kind of gut level excitement, um, happens. That's very interesting. And that's probably true. And, and it has to go back to some notion of fate and the way that, that the Greeks thought about fate versus the sort of like our Americanized view of the hero against nature, right? That went all the way through naturalism and all these other movements. So um, yeah, just a different world uh, in a lot of ways, different way of thinking about fate and the gods. And that, that uh, does take some of the excitement out of it. I agree. Especially for so for those of us who think that the idea of these gods actually being real is crazy, right? Like, um, and that they're like characters. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Well, um, that's really good. So let's let's how about we move on to book six, which our title is "A Princess and Her Laundry," which I thought was a pretty funny title. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, it's so true, though. Yeah. It's so like fairy tale-y. It is so fairy tale and so just to remind where everyone where we're at, Athena goes to the Phaeacians, or Phaeacians, I don't know how you would say that, to get Nausicaa involved, and why Nausicaa? What do you, what do you think about the fact that, that Athena is wanting to get this particular person uh, involved in helping Odysseus? She's real pretty, and she wants a man. <laughs> yep. Except I was only going to see the second half of that sentence. But yes, also, she's really pretty. <laughs> okay, I was trying to ask a kind of more serious question, but, you know, that's good, too. 
<laughs> but it's so it's so tropey though. Like yeah, I true. I kind I kind of think you need the jokey answer because it's very like she understands what she's supposed to do. She knows the cultural meaning of taking her laundry to this specific place and what it means about being ready for marriage. Like it's it's all very formulaic in a way that she understands. Mm. That's true. So Athena knows that this that it's all going to go her way because of the the sort of formula in a sense that she's walking him into. So is that is that a thing? Because I I didn't realize I I wasn't necessarily thinking of it as I I wasn't thinking of it as some kind of tradition. So when I first read that part, I thought, what a stupid reason, Athena. Like, to send her down to do her laundry, because I'm thinking she's the daughter of a king. Are we really thinking she does her own laundry? That she's the one who's going to be doing this? And so I was kind of thinking of it as, as kind of funny. Like, I, I thought it was kind of funny when I read it. Like, this is a kind of a silly excuse for Athena to get her down here is to do her own laundry. But it, that makes way more sense if it was a, a traditional thing for the bride to wash all of her clothes or for, a, you know, a young woman to wash all of her clothes to prepare for marriage. That actually makes more sense out of the whole story. Yeah, it's like a... a- trousseau kind of thing i mean it's not exactly the same it's like her her going through the motions of the preparations of the household Mm. and like proving that marriage is on her mind and that she's ready for it and it's like you know playing her cultural role okay okay then then in that case i that story actually makes a whole lot more sense to me than um why why like you said this seems completely reasonable to her um, you know, and it, and it, it is interesting. Um, and it's still interesting to me, though, that even though she's a king's daughter, this is what she's doing, right? That she's doing it herself, that she's going to wash these clothes herself and, you know, get everything ready um, with her own hands. That is interesting, too, because to me, it says something about maybe ideas about what kind of tasks that royalty would do versus a regular person. But I suppose this is also, again, this is also a culture in which everybody weaves. Every woman seems to be weaving. It's not as if there's anyone above weaving. You know what I mean? Um, So maybe the, these kind of, some of these domestic tasks that we might, you know, that at other points in history might've been coded by class or not really. I I think you're, you're also correct in seeing the kind of pastoral tradition hidden there too and like the all, all the ways that royalty and in, in future generations would kind of harken back to that you know Marie Antoinette's cottage and the way the pastoral works in Shakespeare and it's all of that is I, I think connected to this too yeah I would agree well there she is doing the laundry and then this passage just has to be read in the uh, Emily Wilson translation I'm online one Round 130, so just enjoy it. Odysseus jumped out from the bushes. Grasping a leafy branch, he broke it off to cover up his manly private parts. Just as a mountain lion dressed its strength and beaten by the rain and wind, its eyes burn bright as it attacks the cows or sheep or wild deer. And hunger drives it on to try the sturdy pens of sheep. So need impelled Odysseus to come upon the girls with pretty hair, though he was naked. All caked with salt, he looked a dreadful sight. They ran along the shore, quite terrified, some here, some there, but Nausicaa stayed still. Athena made her legs stop trembling and gave her courage in her heart. She stood there. He wondered, should he touch her knees, 
or keep some distance and use charming words to beg the pretty girl to show him to the town and give him clothes. At last he thought it best to keep some distance and use words to beg her. Now, was that kind of rapey feeling to you guys? So at first I thought that, but then I looked it up and uh, knee touching is a traditional Greek gesture of supplication. Okay. But what, go ahead. I think is him kind of, it's less creepy and more like, I'm not going to hurt you because he is a giant, strange, naked man coming yeah. out of the bushes, which, you know, would be at least frightening, if not yes. more words than that. That's uh, not the part that I was thinking about being rapey, though, okay? I meant the earlier metaphor. Just as a mountain lion trusts its strength and beaten by the rain and wind, its eyes burn bright as it attacks the cows or sheep. Oh, yeah. You know, it just... Oh. Yeah. I mean, okay. To me, it, to me, it felt like, um, it. Well, so let me read you what it says in my translation. Maybe this is why I took it the way I did. It says, um, he looks like some lion of the wilderness that stalks about, exulting in his strength and defying both wind and rain. His eyes glare as he prowls in quest of oxen, sheep, or deer, for he is famished and will dare break even into a well-fenced homestead, trying to get at the sheep. Even such did Odysseus seem to the young women. So to me, it seemed more mm-hmm. of a way of describing how he looked to them. Got it. Um, which is that not not how he was trying to look or how he felt, but I think you're right, Christina. Though I mean, if that's how he seems to them, if he seems predatory, like that's the type of predatory they're probably going to be perceiving that as. I mean, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to see him and think, man, he's going to want to beg something off us. What yeah. a tramp. He's you know, th- no. I mean, th- if this is how he seems to them as some kind of predatory mountain lion out in the wilderness, they're going to think that that you know that he is rapey. I mean, so yeah. I, I mean, I think that you're right. I think that feeling is there, though. I think it's it's on it's in the it's 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 within their perception, not uh-huh. in his trying to yeah. appear that way. You know, um, and I think you're you're right, Victoria. I think the knee touching thing. I, I was I was wondering about that too until I got to the part where she tells him go right up to my mom and grab her around the knees and, oh, yeah. you know, and, and ask her to, you know, tell her who you, whatever. Then I was like, Oh, okay. Th- this is, this is something that's not sexual, this knee grabbing, you know, mm-hmm. um, but is, is in another, is, is a way of throwing yourself on someone's mercy. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I kind of like his circumspection to take a moment and think maybe I shouldn't do that in this situation. Yeah. <laughs> Naked as I am and looking terrifying, you know? Um, and he decides and that, and that, to use know, his speech instead. Yes, which, you know, we know he's really great. And that and that's even and, and that this is one decision he actually makes on his own. Athena doesn't say, hey, don't do that. Right. <laughs> that's a terrible idea. Um, instinctively, he realizes this is a bad idea. Um, but, and, but so yeah. then what do we make of the fact, t- taking into account all that you both have said about choosing speech over being physical, what do we make of... Athena then stepping in and using her powers and making him sort of magically handsomer. Like, Mm. I I feel like that combination is kind of creepier, given everything you've just said. That's a good point. Yeah, because she could have, she could make him, right? Like, with, with her coming in and, like, giving him this... Uh, this 
deity infused glow up. Um, <laughs> it's, it's different. Like it has a different kind of power. Yes. And, and you're right, Victoria. I didn't think about that, but there are so many other ways she could have made him appear non-threatening. She could have made him seem like a sweet old man. You know, she just wants him to not seem like a threat to these young women. There are other ways that she could have done that. But if I'm being honest, there are, there are enough moments in in the Odyssey where I felt like that. It, it's almost like Athena has this weird proprietary pride in in how hot Odysseus is, how oh, hot she can make him. That's true. And 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 she, it's it's. It, I think that she likes to make women kind of fall for him, which is a little creepy. Um, but I think she has, there's, it's, it's, but it's also, it makes me sad for Odysseus because it's the pride of a possession. She's like, look, I've made him so beautiful. All the ladies like him and she doesn't even need to do that really, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it's that you're right, Victoria. It's, it's creepy in a way that, um, you know, not even because of Nausicaa, but because of what it, the way that, that Athena kind of treats him, shows him off, polishes him up as her own possession. I don't know. She literally polishes him. <laughs> she right? Yeah. Makes him like shiny and greasy. I, mm. His uh-uh. hair gets longer, you know, like curlier. longer yeah, and curlier. Longer and curlier. Curly like the, the hyacinth flower, my translation says. Yeah, mine too. That's so interesting because it makes you wonder if this, um, <laughs> be, the puppet that he's sort of, she's sort of controlling him like a puppet has anything to do with what she's not able to experience as uh, an immortal. You know, I just, it's so, in, like, why play with him so much and why be so concerned that he's comes across so attractive, you know, like a possession? It's- and I, I find it particularly interesting, the mention of Hephaestus in this pack, uh, this passage. Mm. Uh, Good catch. At, as, a, as a disabled person, I love Hephaestus and think he's the best. Uh, because he gets one over on the pretty able-bodied people, and I love that. Yeah. Uh, Athena made him look bigger and sturdier and made his hair grow curling tendrils like a hyacinth, as when Athena and Hephaestus teach a knowledgeable craftsman every art, and he pours gold on silver, making objects more beautiful. So this is interesting, not just because Hephaestus runs the forge, so the gold-silver thing makes sense, but if you think about... Um, Hephaestus and Aphrodite and Ares and the story where he makes the giant net and catches them in it out of um, gold and silver. He's, uh, he's sort of using attraction against attractive people. So I think it's really interesting that Hephaestus pops back up in this reference when Athena is using, uh, using methods to trap attractive people with other attractive people. Hmm. It's kind of doing the opposite thing. That's really interesting. It also is a weird kind of mixture of art and nature, right? So that she's described as making his hair, you know, kind of grow like a flower, like a beautiful flower. But then you, when the mention of Hephaestus, you know, then that puts it into the realm of, constructing something or you know like building building something that is um a device or is in some way made not grown and it's also interesting oh yeah cool i like that so we I have, don't know what it means yeah I just like it. you just like it <laughs> <laughs> well and then you get it well, relatively speaking a, a, a fairly long passage where she tells him to go and talk to her mother and uh, there's a long discussion here 
I thought it was long for what it was trying to do. So that makes me go, hmm, uh, what does that mean, right? Do you know what I mean at the end of, of book six and then into book seven? Is this to show that the, the, the mother really is, you know, sort of all the power uh, here or what? I, can I go back to just a second? Yeah, of course. Yeah. The very beginning of that conversation is actually my favorite part. Because okay, good. Her, 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 her story to him about, about why he sh they should go back separately is hilarious to me because it's so heavy handed. Oh, yeah. So she, she says, people will say, who is this fine-looking stranger with her? Where did she find him? I suppose she's going to marry him. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and, you know, perhaps he's a vagabond sailor. or And she's going to live and, and, and has come down from heaven and answered to her prayers. And she's going to live with him all the rest of her life. It would be good if she had a husband. <laughs> it's so heavy-handed and over-the-top and so very pointed. And it's really funny to me that we don't – I would – if I was going to film this – I would love to focus in on a deceased's face while she's saying these things. Yeah, well, the 97 film that Victoria is going back in time to produce, that one? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, because, I like, how uncomfortable would <laughs> you be if, you're, if you've just fled an immortal goddess because you still would prefer your wife of many, many years at home, and now this, you know, beautiful young girl is just laying it on heavy about how you should totally stay here and be her husband. I, it's just kind of funny. <laughs> what um, I thought of in that section... Um, is if you guys seen the old Rodgers and Hammerstein musical Oklahoma? Oh yeah, yeah. It's been a long time. Yeah. Say we're in love. Don't throw bouquets at me. Don't you know? Like mm. we shouldn't be together. Oh yeah. Are, that's uh, I. I feel like that's what's happening here. And there's a kind of yeah, the, that that old Bonnie Raitt song too. But it, it's the translation. Someone rude may say. Who is that big strong man with her? I kept thinking of social media, right? The, the shaming, the all the stuff too. Like, there's... well, and she says over and over. They say in this section, you know, the people here are just mean. They're not nice. Yeah. <laughs> they, I mean, did you guys notice that? Yes. I hadn't. I had never noticed that before because it's described as a beautiful city where they have everything they need. They're under the protection of the gods, you know, and they have all these advantages, and yet. Apparently, it's a, full, a place full of backbiting mean people who will gossip about you. And everybody just knows this. And it's, it's, it's really just, interesting. I wasn't bothered by that, I guess. I grew up in a really small town uh. that felt, like, really idyllic and, you know, old-fashioned. And so I guess I just, I, I feel like that's what she's saying is, like, everybody's going to know your business and if they don't know your business they're gonna make it up and spread it around anyway yeah yeah that makes sense and because you're right they because this it's such an isolated place they say several times that any stranger is remarked upon so that's true i hadn't thought of it that way as a kind of maybe because it's described so fabulously i hadn't really thought about it as essentially a small town <laughs> so that's that's a really good point victoria well, that's a good Sorry, trend. anybody from my hometown who happens to be listening to this. No offense. <laughs> I'm sure that they're fine, Victoria. Well, that's actually a good transition to book seven because you get more of the insight into the town there, right? Where it says people here are not too keen on strangers coming from abroad. Uh, you know, there's a development of the theme of this, the way this town is um, in this section. And I'm not sure what to tell you the truth, what to do with book seven. I'm wondering if it's more about the theme of hospitality that is sometimes carried through 
the Odyssey. Did you guys have thoughts about that? Um, because it does seem to develop this, this, this town a little bit more and how they're not very welcoming. Um, I mean, I, I do think hospitality is a central theme to this book. We've talked about it um, in, I think, all of the episodes. Um, and also weaving. The, the mm -hmm. women are, uh, are occupied in weaving. Um, expert weavers, since Athena gave them fine minds and skill to make the most lovely things. So even, like, even in the most sort of quotidian, mundane um, aspects of small town life, it happens because Athena makes it happen, too. So, like, she's... I'm not trying to make a pun. Like, the gods are w woven into the fabric of these people's lives. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm you sorry. can't help it, Victoria. It's it just a good metaphor, out. though. Yes. There's a reason why it came into your mind. I really wasn't trying to be lame. <laughs> we know. <laughs> well, I mean, th this is a long book about really just that uh, hospitality. I mean, there's this long description of the beautiful fruits. And it's so funny when I went to prepare uh, for this uh, talk, um, this conversation, I was reading these sections and I remember thinking I better get something to eat before I start reading the Odyssey because there's always these beautiful descriptions of food and uh, there's just not a page that goes by without it and there, it's just quite lush in this place and then when Odysseus arrives there he's he sat down by the hearth among the ashes of the fire right he's he's not kind of welcomed in at that point it, it seems to me as part of what what's being said there that like they, they're not welcoming him does that is that how you guys read that yeah i think um that is how i read it and he is motivated by his physical needs mm -hmm. to to reach out to them which he by the codes of that society shouldn't have to do right uh, and he says uh, two, eighteen ish. Uh, my heart is full of sorrow, but my stomach is always telling me to eat and drink. It tells me to forget what I have suffered and fill it up at dawn tomorrow. Help me reach my homeland. So that's really kind of sad and, and human because he's saying, you know, he is in the middle of this like actual giant heroic quest, but even heroes got to eat mm -hmm. like he's, you know, going to have to stop questing for a minute because <laughs> hu human bodies have physical needs, which is why I think, I mean, I know we've sort of alluded a little bit to the fact that this is a, a pre-Christian society, but why I think hospitality becomes such a fundamental early Christian value because there's this idea that if you care for people's physical needs first and recognize their physical bodies as made in the image of God, then you have a way in to meeting their deeper spiritual needs after that. Yeah. And Odysseus is, is touching on that in a, in a certain way here. 
That's good. You know, it's so interesting, too, that this section, after they finally give him something to eat, right, they, right, they, I guess, become convinced, yeah, this guy's hungry, <laughs> right? Um, and then, toward the end, he retells the story of Calypso, right? And so they're stranger, let me be the first to speak to you. Where are you from, and who gave you those clothes? I thought you said you drifted here by sea. And then the translation reads, planning his words with careful skill, he answered, and then begins to tell the story of Calypso. Really interesting to me. Why do you think there, the story uh, that he tells the story there? I mean, yeah, they're asking, like, where did you come from? But I mean, I just, I feel like I'm, I, I feel like I'm missing something here. I'm trying to go back and look, and I and I was thinking while you guys were talking, I, I, and I don't know if it said this in the translation you guys are using, but that um, Butler's old timing translation, he actually says in that scene where he's in the ashes that this was a place where any suppliant would sit. Oh, okay. Is is at the hearth? Uh huh. At least in my translation, he goes there voluntarily, like he walks in, begs her mercy, and then he sits down on the hearth. Okay. Of now, to be fair, then right after that, a little while after that, the the other guests tell Alcinus, they say, hey, this isn't right. <laughs> it's not yeah. credible that a stranger should be sitting there. So they, they take him to task basically for not showing hospitality sooner. Uh-huh. Right? Uh, but uh, it is. Um, but I, I, I didn't know that either. I, I hadn't thought about it that way. I, I, f- I think that you're right. It's interesting that when she asks about the clothes that he doesn't first say explain about the clothes first, but that he goes all the way back and says, well, let me tell you how I got here. Um, but I, if only the only way, the only thing I could think of is if he's trying to establish sympathy, mm. because she 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 seems to understand that something's up. He's wearing clothes of their city, and so if he just comes right out and says, "Well, your daughter gave them to me," mm. that maybe could put him in a compromising position mm. or sounds shady. Whereas if he says, "Listen to my tale of woe," let me tell you yeah. the sad, sad, sad situation that brought me to your shores totally naked. And then maybe you won't feel so bad when you find out that your daughter gave me clothing. I, you know, but I don't know. That's the only way I can, that's the only thing I can think of reason I could think of why he would do it. But also maybe because this is a, a this happens over and over in the Odyssey. Odysseus oh yeah. Tells, you know, so it's, it's, it feels familiar, but in this case, I think maybe that's why he started there with Calypso, but I don't know. What do you guys think? I think it's always a good, uh, argument to make that he's telling the story a particular way uh, for a reason because that happens so much as you mentioned um, in the Odyssey right that that they're not just throwing the parts of the tale in for no reason there's something there's something going on with that and it, it probably is to help them to feel empathetic toward him I think that's a good reading what do you think Victoria uh I agree. I also think there's something foil-like happening with his invocation of Calypso being used when he's trying to infiltrate this um, audience of women. Uh, that that, that he's, yeah, kind okay. of in, he's invoking her... Um, magic her weaving her powers um her particularly feminine powers as a way to ingratiate himself 
um, to these women who are afraid of him, he's or at least a little bit afraid of him. Uh He's telling them about this sort of even scarier, even more foreign um, thing that he came from um, so that he can be less foreign by comparison. Yes. And that he can show his character, too. Because he does insist, she cared for me, and she vowed me to set me free from death and time forever, but she never swayed my heart. Um, she gave me all these clothes to wear, but they were wet with my tears, it says. And then finally she changed her mind and let me go. So, like, I'm the good guy here. She kept me there. That's how I ended up in this situation. Therefore, you can trust me. And Also, he, look- covers, he also covers for her, though, which is interesting, too. Yeah, he, he covers does. for not. You know, because her dad says it was wrong of her not to bring you along right away. And he lies and says, oh, yeah, she asked me to come right away. But I was scared. That's also really interesting because that suggests that her her story about, oh, gossip scandal, people are going to talk is not that's not a concern. At least her father has, hmm. you know, he, he thinks that she should have just brought him along, you know, right away. Um, her and father's so- the king, though. Mm. Yeah, that's true. People aren't going to be gossiping about him. But yeah, should- yeah heck are going to be gossiping about the king's daughter who is unmarried mm. that's true but, it, but and that that you would think though that that would make him more concerned to to kind of make sure that she's not presenting in any appearance of impropriety not least of which because if he wants to marry her off to somebody really really good there need to not be gossipings about her virginity or lack thereof like you would think he would i don't know I, it would seem to me that he he would be I don't know. He seems impressively unconcerned with her reputation for a man in this particular culture. <laughs> I don't know. But maybe I'm, I could be thinking, you know, reading more into it, thinking more Roman than Greek, though. Maybe that's part of the problem. It's all Greek to me. <laughs> that <laughs> Odysseus ends up being happy. He succeeds in his mission at the end of this section. He's, he's uh, at rest and fully fed. And he was glad to go to sleep after all his adventures. So that seems like a good place to to call it quits for tonight. You guys have any final um, thoughts here that we haven't talked about that you had burning, you know, ideas you wanted to raise? Not really. I I I feel like we got to all some of the, all the most interesting parts, and uh, you guys made me think about some things I hadn't thought about before when I was reading, which is to me the goal of doing these things. So I'm good. I agree. Victoria? Yeah. Uh, no, me too. I always have fun recording with the two of you. Uh, this was a blast. Thanks. Thank you both. And thank you listeners for uh, following us along through our Odyssey through the Odyssey. Hope you enjoyed your time with us. And next week we'll be doing the next couple of books in here. Or So stay tuned. Thanks for listening and check us out at thechristianhumanist.org.